Welcome to the Martin Bailey Photography Podcast. It's June 5, 2017, and this is episode 576. Today, I'm really pleased to be able to bring you an inspiring conversation with my friend David Ducheman in which we talk in depth about many of the concepts in his latest book, The Soul of the Camera, The Photographer's Place in Picture Making. We didn't script the conversation, so there's no uh, manuscript for you to follow along on the blog as such, but I have put a few of David's photographs on there and some links to the book and everything. So if you'd like to check that out, go to the blog post at mbp.ac slash 576. I'm actually going to be releasing this during the first few days of my complete Namibia tour for this year. So if it's a few days early or late, uh, then please uh, don't worry too much about that. Also, depending on when the book is actually available, you may be taken to a different site uh, or over to Amazon. Uh, but the URL that we are pointing you to to actually go and grab a copy of David's latest book is soulofthecamera.com. And I'll also put a link directly to Amazon with my affiliate code in the blog post as well. So if you'd like to support the podcast, then you can use that. And as I say, all of the links and a few photos and stuff will be at mbp.ac slash 576. Without further ado though, let's jump in and I really hope you enjoy my conversation with David Dushman. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you, Martin. It's nice to be back. How are you? I'm good, thanks. It's uh, it's always great to talk. Well, uh, we're going to have a, a, obviously a great conversation and uh, I'm looking forward to sharing this with the listeners. Me too. So um, we're, we're here today, obviously, to talk about your, your new book, The Soul of the Camera. And I, uh, I've, you know, I thank you very much. You, I got a, a pre-release uh, version to check out. And um, I've, I read it last week. And once again, I'm blown away by, the, you know, by what you've created here. Um, you know, you, you seem to do it every time. I, I remember when I first read Within the Frame and then, uh, you know, you've obviously been re- releasing books over, over the last few years, number of years. And each time I read a new one, I think you've done it again and you've done it again. So, <laughs> Well, that, that thrills me because I, I live in fear of the day that we get on this podcast and, you know, you say, <laughs> you know, it's been a really good run, but what is this crap that you just <laughs> sent me? So that's, it's, it, is, it is definitely always a relief to hear. Well, it's, um, I, I don't expect anything less. I know that you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't write anything that, and even if you did write it, you probably wouldn't publish it. But, um, I, I just find that over the years, as I've read your, your work and your, um, you know, get, got to know you more as well as we've traveled together and conversed quite a lot. Um, I just find that you, um, you, you do such a great job of giving, the photography community and, and creative people, you know, artists of all walks of life, I imagine, a vocabulary to, to talk about the, um, you know, the things that we, we often find so difficult to talk about. Um, I, I, I know that when I'm talking to people, I can be in a, an educational situation and I, 
I often end up, I find myself using like Davidisms that, that I, <laughs> I, uh, I mean, I'll talk about um, visual mass and stuff like that. And, and a lot of the time, I mean, normally I, I add like a, a disclaimer and this is how David Duchemin talks about it, you know. And so I'll, I'll sort of, I, but, I, but I find myself using your vocabulary such a lot because of, I've, I feel that you've filled, you've given us that vocabulary. So uh, and the soul of the camera is no different. So I'm really looking forward to talking about it. Well, thank you. That's, uh, as I said, that it is high praise. I mean, the, the thing that I want most of all, um, you know, is I, we, we all know these, these books are not, you know, they're not New York Times bestsellers and they're, no, one's, no one's getting rich off publishing photography books. But if I can, if I can uh, contribute, you know, be one of the voices that contributes to the, you know, to the art and make someone's, someone's craft better, someone's art better, that, uh, that's a thrill. Yeah. That, and I, I'm, I'm sure you are. You've, you, I know that there's, there's at least one more person in Tokyo this week that's better off for reading your book. So, um, and, and that won't, that won't change as, uh, as we, uh, as it goes out into the world. Um, just so that the listeners know, I'm, I'm probably going to be in Namibia when I release this. Um, and what I'll do is I'll time this so that it's around the time when, when they're actually able to go over to, the um to your website and actually order a copy um the it, it will be live by then i'm sure so the the url will be the soul of the camera.com i believe no soul of the camera.com soul of the camera that's yeah. right so uh, i'll put that in the show notes and everything but uh yeah i uh, i really can't wait to to s- sort of see the reaction of the the photography community as they start to read this and uh we're going to move on in a moment. What I did was I made a, a number of, um, I, I annotated the book in um, on my iPad as I read it. And I've I've got a few quotes that we're going to talk about, you know, just sort of use as a um, sort of an impetus to a, a, a deeper conversation. Um, but before that, I mean, when you first started to think about uh, the soul of the camera, what sort of things were you were you hoping? I know that you've you've probably have achieved everything that you wanted to do, but what sort of things were, were you hoping to achieve by this new book? Um, well, if we're being perfectly honest, it's it's just teaching it's just teaching um, the same stuff I've been trying to teach for the last ten years, mm. but in in a in a way that uh, from a different angle from from a. Um, you know, I've talked about vision. I've talked about means of expression, and uh, all, everything that I teach is more about us as photographers than it is about the camera. There's a lot of very good voices out there. If you have significant technical questions, there are some excellent, excellent voices out there that address those, and and I am not among them. Uh, but I'm very interested in in the creative life of photographers, and I'm very interested in. Um, the possibilities uh, as you know just as as human beings that the stuff that we do rather than the setting on the dial and I, I felt like the one thing I had not really addressed uh, in fact it had really hadn't addressed at all was the role of the photographer what about all of the other stuff and so that was the question is is okay aside from you can here's the question you, you can expose a photograph you can focus the camera now what mm. what is it that is going to make those photographs 
compelling? What's going to give them the spark and the the life, the story, you know, or or the soul, if you will. And and so the idea kind of became, you know, we are the soul of the camera. There's no there's no vision setting on the dial. There's mm-hmm. no um, you know, press a button and it does the storytelling for you. That's that's all us. Um you know, the, the, the need for curiosity and patience and discipline, the need even to understand just, you know, what does it look like to begin to master a craft? Um, there's so much in the craft of photography that, you know, most of the time when I'm out photographing, I'm not thinking about my camera at all. I, you know, you, you make your decision about the f-stop and the shutter speed and you focus it. All of the other stuff, the composition and what gets you there and what keeps you creative, all of that, the stuff that's actually significantly important ha- remains to be discussed. And, and that was what I wanted to talk about in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've, you've obviously done a great job of that. I wasn't, when I first started reading, I wasn't quite sure what the, what, how the title came into play, but that's, um, as I, obviously as I read the book, I realized exactly what that was. And that's a great way of, of thinking about this stuff. I know that, um, you, you often, like when you, you asked me to write making the print, um, and also there's, you know, I, I did a guest, um, blog on, uh, you know, a guest post on your blog a month or so ago about very technical stuff. And I find it really easy to talk about the technical side of photography because it's sort of, it's cut in stone and I've got a good understanding of that. Um, and I, I do enjoy writing about the, the more sort of, as you, as you often put it, the, what is it? The, um, poet warrior sort of stuff. And I, I find it much more difficult myself to write in that way. And I, I just think that, yeah, you've, you've done, as you always do, a really good job of sort of, of taking, uh, taking those and sort of splitting it up and, and really talking about the, the, the side that you've just mentioned, you know, the, putting the soul in the camera, which is uh, something that uh, we often think of as, you know, it's just a machine in a lot of ways. But what I'll do is I'm going to move on because this really leads in pretty well to the, to the first quote that I, um, that I marked in your in your in the soul of the cameras and that's the um right on page one (laughs) so you you start off straight away by saying photography is not at least the way i understand the medium a technical pursuit it's an aesthetic pursuit achieved by technical means and i'm i wanted to talk about this um i mean i'm gonna i'm going through in sort of chronological order if you like just in the order that you that i pick these quotes out um but I know that I'm guilty to a degree of calling photography a technical pursuit. And usually that's sort of, I tag on that it's also an artistic one. But the way you put it there, the fact that, I mean, it is obviously a technical, uh, um, an aesthetic pursuit. But the way you say that, achieved by technical means, it just, it was like, oh, okay, now I know how how I've got to say this. And I'll be quoting you as I say it in future as well. But um that's that's just such a really brilliant way of putting this. Uh, well, th- thank you. I, <laughs> I I mean, once in a while, I read through my own stuff, and I think, oh, you know, I, this guy knows what he's talking about. <laughs> um, uh, but I'm a little flustered because I I don't take uh, I don't pray, take praise well, but um, I'm grateful. I, I do think that for some people, photography is a technical pursuit. Mm. There, there are people, you know, I, I think I've made the uh, the comparison before and our, our mutual friend, friend, Fernando Gross, has said, you know, there are people that uh, collect guitars and then there are people that make music. Mm-hmm. And it's just that this book is not for people who 
collect cameras. This is, book is for people that are longing to make stronger, more compelling photographs. And for them, it is, it's a storytelling pursuit. It's an aesthetic pursuit. It's a, it's a human thing. The cam- cameras don't make photographs. People make photographs. We just make them with cameras. Yeah. And it may be ex- just wildly pedantic to draw those lines. But I think the way we use words um, is a function of how we think. And if you were thinking about this as a technical pursuit, that the technical becomes the point right. rather than chasing vision and story and something that connects on a deeper level. Because technology, as interesting as it is, doesn't tend to really connect with people. You know, it's a it's a cold, it's high high tech is low touch. Mm-hmm. And I think photography can do better. We can use these astonishing uh pieces of equipment and they are they're miraculous but they they don't they, you know they just don't have this they don't have the soul they don't have all of these other things the curiosity and the wonder and and so it's it it becomes our job and i think if we think about it in that way and i'm i'm hoping this book is seen as a, a very practical book i didn't write this to be you know to be the king of the poet warriors in the photography world mm. I, I wrote this because i really felt like if people shifted the way they thought they will make better photographs you know mm. and and yes the the quote you mentioned came from chapter one which is about the place of craft i i sort of felt like i had to start the book with a disclaimer saying look before i go in all of this other stuff the craft stuff matters but that's every time i put a thing out on facebook and say you know gear gear doesn't really you know it's not as important as vision so there's always a yeah but somebody comes on and goes yeah i would tell that to the guy who's for i'm like yeah you know what i get it i get it but that's the price of admission we we shouldn't be defending the need to learn how to focus and expose and use our gear in the way that we need to use it that's just assumed mm. now can we move on and just have a, a more interesting conversation about the bigger stuff yeah yeah and that comes across i mean i i i know that when i'm reading your books i often think i'll 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 get this little a knife stick in my side and it's like i mean it's like you're talking about how um being being totally sharp is not is not um the most important thing or, you know, is not important about various things that I put a lot of preference, you know, I, I put a lot of uh, priority on making sure that everything is, is as sharp as possible. I like to, I like to get, make big photographs with the, like the five DS now 50 megapixels. I love having that. So when you say it's not about how big you can print the image, I'm thinking, you know, he's probably thinking about me when he's writing this, um, <laughs> but I, uh, and I get this little, a little tiny knife or a, or a toothpick or something in my side go, and I'm, so I'm thinking, you know, but I, the, the point I wanted to make there is that I know exactly what you're saying because I put a lot of, um, priority on not so much priority but i i try really hard to make very technically good images but i know what you're saying in that that's not what it's all about though i mean that's a given in in this day and age with the equipment we own and the where we're actually you know we're being able to use is um being able to make a sharp image is really just a given and it's it if you decide that it's not going to be sharp or if there's a moment that comes along when you know it's just 
it, it was for some reason it isn't sharp, then you've you've still got the decision as to whether or not it's still a beautiful photograph. And it doesn't necessarily depend on whether it's sharp or whether it's 50 megapixels or 10 or whatever. So yeah, the, the yeah. points that you make in there are so valid. And although it sometimes feels like I'm getting a little knife stuck in my side, I... Well, uh, yeah, Martin, it, it shouldn't because I, I, you know, I, I never, I, the fact is when I, you know, when I look at your work and when we've had conversations, you are, you are technically very proficient and you have a very technical mind in a way that I don't have. But the point of your photographs is not sharpness. Sharpness exactly. becomes a tool. Yeah. And so, uh, and, and there are images that I look at of mine that sharpness is important. And because I have failed in that regard, and I look at it and go, ah, you know, if this was something else, that lack of sharpness might, it might totally work. Mm. And I have images, as you do, that are completely wildly blurry, you know, intentional <laughs> camera motion. And, yeah. and and there are pictures that I have with plunged shadows and others with blown out highlights. Mm. For one photograph, that's completely appropriate. It carries the vision. It's one tool. And for another, it it is the same thing and, and makes the image completely fall apart for lack of the sharpness or the highlight detail or the shadow detail, mm. you know, but again, these, this, if people get to the point where, for example, for where you're at and you can just recognize it as, yes, I happen to really like this particular tool, but it is just a tool. Mm. And there will be times when that sharpness is not relevant. Mm. Um, again, it's, you know, it's, it's like poetry. Some poets camp out on certain words and certain, they, they might want to be a little bit more particular about their verbs or their nouns. But at the end of the day, the point is, how are you saying it? Mm. If sharpness gets in the way of the thing you're trying to say, soften that sucker up. And yeah. if it, if, if the, if the sharpness is necessary, then make it sharp. Mm. But you can only do that if you have learned or are in process of, I think we're always learning, mm. but if you're in process of learning your craft, yeah, yeah. if you're lazy about it, and this is, you know, this is one of the things that you've had an influence on me is the priority of printing. When I came back to printing, mm. um, I became aware of areas where I had allowed my craft to slip and where I got lazy and printing my work and I've just gone through another, you know, another 25, 30 images from my last trip. And, you know, you can't know the true character of a photograph until you print it. And then you start seeing all of these little bits of laziness and mm. they do truly the lack in some images, the lack of sharpness or whatever it is mm. gets in the way of communicating the message. And, and the soul just isn't isn't there. It's all very well for us to say, you know, to quote Henri Cartier-Bresson when he says sharpness is a bourgeois concept, um, which I think is, you know, I, I imagine him saying that with his, his tongue in his cheek a little mm. bit. When when sharpness matters, it matters. But can, can we agree that we've all agreed and now let's move on and talk about the photograph itself? Yeah. That would be an interesting place for me to see the, the photographic community get to. Yeah, exactly. Beautifully put. So, um, the one thing that jumped to mind as you as you spoke there, um, and I'm not sure if I've actually, if we've spoken about this in the past, but um, you talked about you know plunging the shadows, and um, I I actually you know every time a new camera comes out, people start all start talking about um, how it's it's got a wider dynamic range and this that and the other, and I imagine that there'll be a time, probably in a, in a few years, when the dynamic range of the cameras is so great that um we you know obviously we'll, we won't uh we won't see so many hdr images because it'll all be there anyway but mm -hmm. i i actually i find that at the moment 
what I've um, what I'm doing is is obviously I'm I'm using the the technique that I was talking about, exposed to the right, and and I find that I can get the full range of dynamic range in in the images that I want. But I actually I enjoy the fact that we still get nice deep shadows, and um, I I think we have spoken about this in the past as well, but. You know, a lot of the time, the, the shadows are what make the image. If if you if you've got no shadows, then you've you've obviously got no light areas. It's all just low contrast. Um, mm. So I think that as the cameras do get better, and we end up with like I don't know, fifteen or twenty EV of of dynamic range, I'm I'm going to still be going in, I imagine, and and grabbing the sliders and plunging the shadows on purpose because they they often add so much mood to the image. And do you find that in your own work, do you do you darken shadows down, um, you know, to to sort of compact the dynamic range in your images as well? Well, okay, I'm going to. You've opened a, a Pandora's box. You have double clicked a zip folder um, <laughs> here that uh, I have actually changed the way that I shoot significantly um bearing in mind that i'm not doing astrophotography and super crazy low light stuff mm. i've kind of got to the point and and <laughs> for those of you listening you know this is my thing you might not want to follow me into this insanity but mm. i've actually kind of gone back to shooting like a like a film or a jpeg shooter mm. i'm because i'm shooting mirrorless and i can see my histogram and i can make the compromises i know i need to make because uh when I can, I'm shooting at lower ISOs, and the sensors these days are so good mm. uh, because so much of what I'm doing is in black and white, and I'm actually adding green. Mm. And you know, you mentioned these cameras going into you know crazy, you know, getting getting you know 20 stops of mm. of dynamic range. And I'm like, I hope to God when that happens that Leica comes out with a, a black and white Leica M with like 10 stops of dynamic yeah. range, yeah. so that I can go back and. <laughs> I love if you and I have ever talked about even mentioned HDR, this has come up because I love shadows. And yeah. I think that's the one sin of the overcranked HDR. HDR itself is fine for those that, you know, that want to use it for their purposes. Mm. But overcranked HDR where you lose the shadows, where you lose these incredible compositional elements, where you lose the mystery and the, mm. you know, it, gosh, who was it? Was it um it's one of the painters, and I want to say it was like Monet, but I may be wrong. But he basically got to the end of his life and realized that the most powerful, the most compelling color that he could possibly use was black. <laughs> and and I I love I love that. And I I was at a Degas exhibit in Australia, and there was a similar comment made that if Degas would go back and do his career over, he would just do black and white, mm -hmm. um, which is astonishing for a painter to say, you know, we, many photographers started with black and white because that was just what film was, mm -hmm. um, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I really like, and this plays into vision. Not everyone has this vision, but for those that like deep saturated shadows you shouldn't allow the cult of the histogram to make you feel shame over the fact that there are no details in your shadows mm -hmm. you know just maybe there doesn't need to be maybe the you know if you have a camel shot against the sunset 
uh, to have detail in that camel is only going to take away from the power and the grace of the mm-hmm. shape mm-hmm. of the camel. And let's face it, no one's sitting there going, gosh, you know, that's a great picture of a silhouetted camel. If if only I could see the identity of that camel. <laughs> yeah. Like, I can't, which camel is it, for God's <laughs> sakes, David? You know, give me some friggin' detail in those shadows. No one yeah. has said that to me yet. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm with you. I, I adore shadows. And I think, you know, I think a lot of the... Um, uh, the photographs and soul of the camera, I made an intentional decision only to work in black and white uh, and to repurpose some of my older work. The it's, it's quite, it's quite kind of inky and, you know, dark in the shadows. And I, I love it. I'm pushing my blacks and cranking my tone curve and doing what I can to restore a feeling. You know, when I was 16, I picked up a, uh, I picked up black and white film for the first time. And that contrasty, just there was something about it big grain because it was cheap film and mm. i was crap in the dark room so <laughs> i was always blowing my negatives you know like at the development and and so it was grainy and contrasty and to me maybe it's just there's a a nostalgia about it as well i don't know mm. yeah maybe maybe that's it i i do um i i understand what you're saying about the the way you've changed your the way you photograph um and i there's, uh, I'm sure you've you've heard the the technical term that ISO invariance, and that they, I, I did a post about this maybe about a year or so ago now. Um, but most of the cameras that we use now, I still use the exposed to the right technique because that's how I'm comfortable shooting, and I I do believe that there's there are benefits to that. But of course, there, yeah. but there's there's also, I mean, with ISO invariance. I know as well that even with a field full of white cranes on a white background, I could do now with the cameras that we have, I could do no exposure compensation. I could go to full auto and just let the camera do what it wants to do. And the with, I could then increase the exposure to make it all white again in the software that we have. And the mm. quality of those images with what with the cameras we have now wouldn't really change because there's, you know, they're, it's well. It's basically it comes down to ISO invariance, and I I did some tests even with my 5DSR, which is a very it's small photo site, 50 megapixels on a 35 millimeter um, sensor, and mm. I, I went in and did some tests, and I found that I can still push an image. I can shoot it at a hundred, and essentially underexpose it, or I can increase the ISO to say uh, 800. I think I found that I got three stops, so I could go to 800, and the images look exactly the same. If I push the exposure to 800 in the camera, uh, and I actually, obviously, 800 is still very, very low these days, and I'll, mm-hmm. I'll regularly shoot at 5,000 or so. 3,200 is something I'll go to as a no-brainer. Um, I've got photos from inside a, a hut in Namibia two years ago that I shot with the 5DS, and I... I was shooting at ISO 5000 and 6400 and you can't see the grain because of you know the the way I shot them but um to stop myself digressing too far you you can actually push the images if even if I wanted to increase them and make them brighter I could push the images by 3 to 4 stops without introducing any grain um because of ISO invariance um but it, I mean with your work I, I'm going to I'm going to invite the the uh, listeners to scroll down on the blog post and take a look at the I've got three images that I selected from your work from the book and the first one this this little boy picking his nose which is beautiful um, <laughs> you've got such deep shadows there 
And, uh, you know, I imagine that even if you, um, if you just pointed a camera at that in full auto mode, you'd still end up, obviously you, you, you wouldn't get exactly the same image, but you, um, those deep shadows that you've got there, you don't really necessarily need to, um, to like, I mean, I would still shoot this in manual because it's just how I work. Um, I would imagine also that there are times when you perhaps, on a, in a very dark situation like this, you may end up having to um, decrease the exposure to stop the boy, the highlights on the boy from um, from blowing out. But I'm, I'm getting way too technical on this stuff. What what I wanted, what I wanted to, the point I wanted to make was really just that the way you've decided to um, to shoot makes so much sense these days. And again, it comes down to the fact that we've just got such great equipment now. I, th I think the incredible uh, advances that have been made in in digital imaging uh, now make it as as you point out. You know this this is not an excuse to be lazy, but it does allow us. We we do not now need to be so neurotic about mm. oh God, you know I got to get within one stop. I can't blow out my this or I can't. You know it does again, without justifying laziness of craft, it allows us to put our creative energy into being creative. You know, if we only have so much attention span, mm -hmm. it's really nice now that we can direct more of that attention span to waiting for the moment, to composing, to all of the creative stuff, as opposed to sweating over our histograms and, you know, bracketing things and, and you know, chimping our photographs and, oh God, I hope I got it. Now we can stay in the moment for longer. We can be a little bit, a little bit looser with things because, as you said, you know, I, I used to. I mean, eight hundred ISO that freaked me out. <laughs> Even on my Canon five D, I mean, I just eight hundred is like that's getting crazy. And now, it, when I leave the wherever I'm staying, you know, I'm walking on the streets in India, or I, I, you know, jump into the water and and scuba dive. ISO 800 is my starting point mm. because I can flip it down to four if I need it or, or further, or I can flip it up to 1600, but between 400 and 1600, I'm not seeing a big difference, mm. yeah. you know, and, and it allows me so much freedom. And I know that if I get it, and again, I don't want to justify laziness, but if I get it close, mm. I'm way more interested in just getting it close because there've been some of the best photographies and photographers in history have been a little bit lazy with their negatives. You know, mm -hmm. some of them are really not that great. And you look at them now, but you look at their contacts and go, wow, they, they're sure they're, they're cropping those. And they're, you know, the negatives weren't so great. Like they're <laughs> the people that printed their work deserve almost as much accolades as the photographers <laughs> themselves. So it's, it, maybe it's a return to focusing on what we should be focusing on all along, which is the image itself. Mm, yeah, yeah, couldn't agree more. What I'm going to do then, I'm going to read out the next quote that I uh, I picked out from the soul of the camera. And that's from page 36. And it said, you said, yes, it's true. Everything has been photographed. But unless all we want to do is say, here's what this looks like, rather than the much more subjective and personal, here's how I see it, here's what it feels like, we can do better. So I'd love to talk about this a little bit more. Well, I, I, I actually can't remember which chapter that's from, but I do. one of the things I talk about in the book is uh, as 
um, you know, again, the place of the photographer in picture making, part of our place is a willingness to interpret what we see and then photograph from that place of interpretation. Not just to say, behold, here is the Taj Mahal, because let's face it, if you want a picture of the Taj Mahal, you can go on a Google image search and there will be a hundred thousand images of the Taj Mahal, some of them really horrible and some of them far better than anything I've ever made. But if you if you want a photograph that is creative, that interprets, that says, here is the Taj Mahal, the way I see it, the way I feel about it, mm. then then that requires a willingness to interpret. That requires us to, you know, to use the the most incredible photographic tool we have, although it's sometimes the least used, and that's our brains. Mm. You know, to 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 actually work through the creative process, maybe struggle a little bit, maybe try some sketch images and realize, okay, that one's not working and this one's not working. But hey, if I, you know, change my angle or my, you know, my focal length, uh, and then wait for a better moment, wait for someone to come in to the frame or whatever that that willingness to interpret we need to embrace that because again if we're trying to cut through all the noise and be the one create the one photograph that's going to stand out mm. uh we've we've got to do better than here's what it looks like and i'm mm. not the only one saying this i mean all kinds of people have said it before david allen harvey who's way more qualified to speak about these things uh, most of the photographers uh of the last hundred years at some point have said some version of shoot what it feels like, not just what it looks like, mm. you know, put something more into it than just, you know, behold, here is the Taj Mahal. Cause you know what? We all, we all know what it looks like now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 50 to hundred years ago, people were coming back and saying, you know, look, this is a guy from Papua New Guinea. And we were all going, Oh my God, that's a like, really, I'm, but now <laughs> We already know, you yeah, know, in fact, yeah. the guys from Papua New Guinea are probably going to the Taj Mahal and going back <laughs> and going, here's what the Taj Mahal looks like. And they're all going, we know, we've seen it on Google image search. <laughs> so, so it's time for us to take a, maybe to pick up, you know, a different mantle or carry a different torch because, because the, here's what it looks like. We don't need it anymore. Mm. Now, now we're sort of, you know, that French, uh, American French painter name, named Robert Henry said, paint the spirit of the flying bird, not the feathers. And to me, that's about uh, making photographs about something, mm. not just photographs of something, which is a theme I've, I've talked about before. But this time I sort of, you know, got into a real lather about this particular issue. And, mm. <laughs> um, and, and I think the idea of being willing to interpret and when you have the camera to your face saying, you know, what am I saying? How am I approaching this um, that, that brings some emotion to it? How am I representing not just this place, but a unique moment in this in this, um, you know, this space or whatever it is you're photographing, how can you bring your own opinions and thoughts to this scene? Mm, yeah. Yeah. I, I did a, um, a post a, a month or so ago in, in which I, I talked about how I, and I was actually, I was really pleased to see as I, as I read through your book, you, you mentioned something very similar as well. Um, but they, I, Although I'll obviously, I generally, if I decide I'm going to go somewhere, it's usually some sort of a visual clue. I'll, I'll have, I'll have seen photos of it somewhere, or I'll have seen a documentary on TV that piques my interest, and then I'll say, okay, I want to go there. But once I've decided to go somewhere, I actually, I try not to look at other photos because it sort of plants these seeds that you, you end up, you go there and you you spend your whole time trying to find someone else's photos, and I. Um, in in that post, I was I was talking about um, you know that how 
I what I normally do now, I even if I know that everything's been shot, but I don't try necessarily to avoid the the cliche um, or you know if there's some some images are just so obvious that you're going to end up making them. But to me, the most important thing is is to to try to not base that on a photograph that I've seen, but to still leave myself open to the scene and shoot it how I I want to, based on you know the the visual sort of input that I'm getting from the scene itself. And obviously, I I do try. I'll, I'll work around. You talk about the, um, in fact, the the next fr- um, thing that we'll talk about is about the iterative nature of of photography and how we sort of. You know, you, you'll go in. I mean, I've seen you work in the field, and I know that you're you're a master of this. And sort of shoot something from one angle, and then just sort of asking questions. And what if I go a little bit further over here, or what if I use a different lens, or what if I, you know, get in a bit closer, and various things. And we gradually work down to what we believe is the sort of the optimal image for that, for, for from our perspective, uh, for mm-hmm. any given subject or scene. Um, but I think that. That is so much more important to, you know, we, we can call our work our own more when it's come from within ourselves rather than, um, and, and that is really sort of takes us to what you're saying here in that um, it, it then becomes more about what it feels like to us and how we are, um, you know, understanding and, and seeing that scene. And of course, there's all, there's all sorts of, again, being a the technical sort as I am, I'm, I'm starting to think that even as I speak, then we've got things like, okay, yeah, well, you slow the shutter down, you're going to get more subject movement or, or movement in the frame. You, if you speed it up, you're going to freeze things. And we start to use all of those technical decisions, but it's all, again, coming back to what we spoke about earlier, it's all just a means to, to really sort of get the pixels you know, in the final image um, that are representing how we're feeling about it. So, yeah, it's it's a, a great way to look at this stuff. I, th- I think I think you're absolutely right. I think you know the expectations do blind us. And you know when I when I go to a place, you know, let's go with the Taj Mahal. You know, yes, go photograph the Taj Mahal, and yes, take the cliche shot. Just don't stop there because mm. creativity, mm. as you you know, as you uh, mentioned, it is iterative, which means A leads to B, leads to C, leads to D, and eventually you're at you know a, a combination of letters you never expected, uh, and you're you know it leads to the silent cue, and you're like, how did I get here? Mm. But it's it is so much. Uh, closer to the way you think or feel or something that's authentic to yourself that, but you wouldn't have got there if you hadn't started, you know, make the sketch images, make, yes, make the crappy cliche shot, make and knock yourself out. There's no one's looking at your, at your sketches and judging you. So make them, but just keep going, go deeper. I mean, if the whole theme of the book could be reduced to one thing, it's probably just go deeper, whatever it is, go deeper, you know, play a little longer. If you're going to play, play deeper. If you're going to, you know, be curious, be deeply curious and, and let it take you. Cause we're so as a culture, even we're so on the surface of things, we just sort of skitter atop the surface. And, you know, I, I don't want to be a dilettante. I want to be, I want to, I want to go deep. And I think the images made from that depth and depth of process will be stronger, more compelling photographs. It doesn't mean they have to be, you know, black turtleneck, smoking a pipe kind of artistic <laughs> capital A, mm. you know, um, kind of depth. I just mean, go deeper than you are now. 
mm-hmm. you know, and and then a year from now, go deeper than than you've become and continue going deep, and your work will get stronger and stronger and probably more focused, you know, because mm-hmm. we can only many people go shallow because they want to photograph everything. Mm. But as you go deeper, you have to start focusing. We don't have the attention spans to focus on absolutely everything and do so at, you know, at depth. Mm. So that's why I think when you look back over the life of photographers that you really respect, you see, uh, you see a focus, you see these bodies of work that, that have depth and focus, but it also means there's a whole bunch of things they didn't photograph. Mm. You know, it, there are a lot of really accomplished photographers that believe it or not, never went to Iceland Mm. and, you know, because (laughs) they were doing their specific thing or they never Mm. shot weddings or, or, you know, airplane shows or, you know, they, they did (laughs) their thing, but they succeeded because they did it for 30 years. Mm. You know, they had had three, four different bodies of work, but they took them 30, 40 years to get, as opposed to just this surface thing that we're all doing. Mm. You know, I, that's, that's really interesting. I, I, one thing that I've found, um, and I, I've done this over the years, um, in that I, I love to look at street photography, um, I, I spoke with uh, a friend of mine here in Tokyo named Lee Chapman a few weeks ago and did an interview on the podcast with him. And Lee shoots some of the most beautiful, um, it's very gritty and raw and he's sort of, is in your face in a lot of ways. He's a really nice guy. So I'm, um, you know, I know that he probably diffuses situations pretty well, but um, I love looking at street photography and living in Tokyo. It's, it's a, a population of 13 million in this city and it's sort of a mecca for street photography if I wanted to but when I get some time I grab my camera and go and photograph flowers in the park or Mm. or I'll I'll jump on a plane and go to Hokkaido or I'll jump in my car and drive into the countryside and get away from the city as quickly as possible in a lot of ways and uh, I but it doesn't mean that I um I can't appreciate street photography and I love looking at it I, I'll get to the point in a moment, but I'm actually I've, in front of me at the moment. I've got a um, a book called All About Saul Leiter. I, I went to Saul Leiter's um, uh, exhibit in Tokyo on on Saturday, and uh, I mean he's he photographed New York in a way that I've never seen, um, mm. and I've got a deep appreciation for that sort of work, but I I don't do it because I it's it's about priorities and it's about what interests me, and. I find that when I shoot that kind of photography, it doesn't really, you know, there are places like Namibia where I'll get into into portraiture and cultural work, which I absolutely love. Um, but it a lot of the time, for me, it's more about, um, I don't want to use the word battles so much, but it's more about picking your battles. And mm-hmm. if I've only got a finite amount of time to actually grab the camera and go out and shoot, I want to do. I want to photograph the things that really move me and that I really feel uh, a strong connection with, and that's why I can sit down and and look through a book of of street photography and be totally inspired and totally moved by what I'm seeing. But it doesn't necessarily mean that I want to make the time to go out and do that kind of work myself. Does that no, mean? I, I, oh, absolutely. Mm. I think I think we have to follow our curiosity and our curiosity will only take us for most of us in so many directions. And there are a lot of things that we just, 
we just don't care about. But I love I love your focus here because you're saying you're looking at this guy's work, work that you would never do, not even really interested in, but you're learning from it and you're finding inspiration in it. And I think that's so valuable. I mean, I, I adore, I mean, I'm smiling over here because I adore Saul Leiter. Um, I've just got his uh, his early black and early black and white books that come kind of as a twin set. And he has another one coming out actually that uh, focuses on his, uh, his nude work. And I don't think it's out yet, but it's coming out this summer. And I'm very excited to get that. I think Saul Leiter is just an absolutely, absolutely wonderful guy. And he was very diverse. You know, he, he mm. could, he was an early colorist along with people like Fred Herzog and Ernst Haas. Mm. And he's absolutely brilliant at the color stuff. And then you see the black and white stuff and you go, Ooh, yeah. I'm not sure now. Was he a colorist or is he a black and white? <laughs> like he, he, he was right up there in some of that early black and white stuff with, yeah. you know, people like Robert Duano and Cartier-Bresson. So, but you can learn from it and appreciate it and not ever feel the need to pick up a Leica and, you know, strike out into the gritty urban, you know? Mm. Yeah. I think it's, it's obviously going to have that effect on some people. And, and again, that's really just following our hearts. If it's, if it moves you to the point that you do grab a Leica and go out and shoot the same sort of stuff, then that's, that's great too, of course. But yeah, it's, it's one of those things that we, um, we, we can gain. And you talk about a lot of this sort of stuff in the book, of course, but you know, we, we gain our inspiration from a lot of different places and, and sources. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to use it to make exactly the same sort of work. We, the, coming back to the point about this, this particular quote was that I think it, it's more about um, finding what you love to do and really concentrating on, on that because we, then, then it's going to become really your, our own work. And that's something that you, you, you go over so well in, in the soul of the, of the camera. So mm. well, I, I I agree. I think, and again, you know, not to beat the dead horse, but if we can go deeper with stuff, mm. we will be more familiar with it. We will see things with with uh, uh, with more seasoned eyes. Uh, mm. We'll have more experience with composing it and anticipating moments. I, I am convinced that that the deeper we go, that we are setting ourselves up for greater and greater success because you can't go deeper and not return to the same places and the same subjects and, and get more familiar and, you know, shoot through the low hanging fruit and the cliches and finally get to the deeper stuff. Some of us never do that because we go to one place, we shoot it and, we, and all we ever photograph is the low hanging fruit in 50 countries. And then call it a day. And if that makes you happy, that's mm. knock yourself out. But if what you want is to, to communicate through the medium of photography and to build bodies of work and stronger, more compelling photographs, deeper will always favor you. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. So the next quote that I, uh, that I picked out was from page 59. Uh, you say patience matters because of the iterative way our creativity works the way inspiration and ideas always seem to come after false starts and detours. It's our ability to pursue those false starts and not fall into despair the moment we realize we're further from our best ideas that makes sure those detours become just the longer scenic route to whatever it is we, uh, wherever it is we're going instead of a dead end. Mm. And this is, this is great. Again, I, I mean, before I, I say what I was thinking here, do, do you have anything to, to add to that? Obviously, it's well, I, I think it actually, it, <laughs> well, it is, but it, um, I, you know, I, 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 I had what I said, what I had to say when I wrote it, uh, <laughs> what, 
I, I think it speaks to the conversation we just had in the sense that uh, you need to be you need to wait, you, you know, and I, by patience, I don't mean just sit on the side of the road and wait for, I mean, active, perceiving, receptive, being ready, working through it. And it's patience on several different level, levels, including patience with yourself, mm. including the idea that, you know, yes, I know you're 22 and you've had a camera for all of three years and you feel you should have mastered this craft, but <laughs> fasten your seatbelt because it's going to get more interesting over the next 30, 40 years. And now I've been doing this for 30 years and only now beginning to feel like, yeah, now I, I, I understand my tools to the point where they get out of the way. They're much more intuitive. I understand myself. I'm more gracious with my own failings and, and also just kind of, I'm less tolerant of all the bullshit and I can kind of just follow my own, follow my own desires and my, my vision, my curiosity, whatever. Mm -hmm. So I think having that kind of patience and, and then not taking it so seriously, you know, you may go out to photograph one morning and you think you're going to come back with all these images of, you know, red crowned cranes in Hokkaido, but the light doesn't cooperate and the weather is crap. And on your way home, you detour to this little spot that you've shot before. And some amazing thing happens when you come back and you're like, I, I had no idea that I was going to be photographing these, you know, scenic, whatever, you know, storms coming in off the North Sea. But you end up with this, you know, six killer photographs that you never imagined. Well, if you were so frustrated by your experience, mm waiting for the red crown cranes that you just went out oh, to hell with it and you're grumpy and you're driving home you're not in a receptive mood you're not looking you're not you know wh why do we feel like we can just go out and accomplish something miraculous in in one two-hour period when every other artist in the world takes a long time they sweat over this stuff you know mm. they don't just write a novel and fire it off they write it and edit it and rewrite it and you know go back mm. to the drawing board if you're if you're just more patient, mm. you, you magic you know you, the magic happens more often you know or or your eyes are maybe it happens all the time and just our eyes are closed to it because we're being impatient with ourselves and we're just not you know we're not being receptive we're we're so uh, stuck on our own agenda for what we're creating and it's important we be tenacious but yeah. you know life doesn't life isn't there to to serve our vision um and just go ah oh, well david david wanted this so we'll serve it up to him i i mean don't get me wrong i wish that were the case but my experience with life is significantly different mm -hmm. and so it, it if patience gets you to being more receptive and more uh um observant um then that can only be a good thing because that is truly the job of the photographer not pushing the button the button is you know that's the easy stuff yeah yeah yeah, I as you just said there, you talked about you know someone writing a novel, and and of course the other the other possibility there is that they also they'll be writing them and sending them off to publishers and hearing nothing. You you often hear about people writing uh, great work and then it finally gets published and becomes a bestseller, but then you you hear that they'd actually been turned back, turned down by fifty publishers before they got found one that would actually publish it for them, and they, you know I think. Um, the, that tenacity is certainly something that anyone leading any kind of a creative life is going to come up against. And it, it is just so important that, you know, to, like you say, just to do the iterative um, stuff, make sure that we, we continue to plow through because uh, then there's pretty much always going to be something at the end. But as you mentioned here, um, it might not always be from that particular shoot or that particular light, you know, project or anything. So, um, just as you say, you know, take, take them as a detour 
um, and and enjoy enjoy it. Um, I I have these uh, USB key things, uh, um, USB memory things made for for people on my tours, and on the back I I um, I'm, I think I've changed this on the last the last batch, but. Um, I have a quote just saying, a quote basically from myself, but I obviously heard it somewhere, saying it's all about the journey. Um, mm. And and I think that obviously that is, that's what life's about, isn't it? You know, we, we, we experience all of this stuff and we become who we are based on the experiences that we, we gather through life. And so, and that's in life itself, but also in our photography or any other creative pursuit, we, we have to sort of gather all of these experiences and so even if it doesn't turn out, it, then we're still going to be made richer by, by whatever we try. And, and even if it, it's like, okay, so that didn't work. So we, we chalk that up to experience. We still benefit from it because we now know something that doesn't work as well as the, you know, on a, we're on a, our way to the next thing that possibly could. So Total, Totally. I mean, you know, that, that morning you spend photographing something and it doesn't go well and you berate yourself for being, you know, oh, God, how could I have been so stupid? Or I forgot this or I didn't do this. You know what? That's just it's just a crappy bus ride. That's mm. all it is. It's a crappy bus ride. And if that crappy bus ride gets you to where you're going, mm. then it's worth it. Everyone has to have a crappy bus ride. I get on crappy plane rides all the time. Mm. Um, but they're the price of admission. They're, they're what I need to do to get me there. So but I think when we write it off as all oh, these, you know, all I photographed was garbage and it blah, blah, blah. And we. If you, you're missing an opportunity to learn, you're missing an opportunity to look at those photographs and instead of treating them like garbage, treat them like sketch images and say, okay, what did I like in here? What was I trying to accomplish? What did I accomplish? Uh, what did I not accomplish? How can I learn from this? And and just be gracious with yourself because again, sometimes, you know, sometimes guitarists, they sit down, they just play scales. They just play their chords and scales and they do their exercises. Maybe you going out and shooting I mean, I've been whole trips. I did a whole trip to Cambodia and Laos, and I don't think I've ever shown a single photograph from there. Mm. It just, it didn't work with me. Mm. But I learned a lot, and mm. I came back, and I I licked my wounds, and I looked at the the contact sheets on my computer, and I kind of went, okay, what can I learn? What what should, what could I have done that I did not? Mm. And, um, and then you apply that. But I tell you what, the only worst thing that coming back from Cambodia and Laos with a bunch of lousy photographs is not leveraging that, not learning from it, and it being totally wasted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, excellent. So um, I'm going to jump on. I'm going to skip a couple of these because we're coming up to an hour and we've actually touched on a, uh, a number of these, uh, these things as we've just spoke. So I'm going to jump down to a quote that I picked out from page 175. Um, and you... You said, uh, the biblical story of the creation of humanity has the creator making man from clay and then breathing his own life into him. I find that symbolism striking and relevant. If our work is to be human, it's our task as its creator to breathe life into it. Uh, Inspiration, literally to inhale, is everything we do to draw our deepest breath from the world around us. But it's the act of exhaling into our work that makes it ours that gives life and spark to what we make. Um, again, I, I love this. A lot of the time I'm reading through, I was reading through the soul of the camera and this is one of those times when the hair on the back of my head stuck up a little bit and I was sort of, I was thinking it almost like one of those epiphany sort of things. But I, I've, I've, in the past I've, I've noted to myself that inspiration means to inhale. 
but I'd never thought about the fact that, you know, we, we're breathing life into what we make as we exhale. So I just wanted to sort of to, to mention this as, you know, and have a bit of a deeper conversation on this as well. Is there, uh, is there anything that, you, that you, uh, you'd like to add? Um, no, I mean, I think it's important that we take it as, as metaphor. Um, but I, I think, you know, we, as photographers, we talk a lot about inspiration and, Mm. oh, I was so inspired and, you know, and that's, that's well and good. Um, but it's not the Holy grail. I mean, it's creativity is not, you know, the creativity kind of gets this, uh, we've put a capital C on it and we've made it the sole domain of the art world. Um, and inspiration kind of has gone along with that. It's it's this, you know, it's one of the 12 apostles of creativity mm. or something. And the reality is it's just breathing, man. It's just, mm. you know, you study the masters, you get, you live your life, you get inspired by things you see and things you hear. And it's just this big, great, beautiful soup that will be different from one person to another. But none of it's worth anything until you exhale, until you do the work. And, and I really believe, I love, I love the, that I can pick up a book from, you know, again, you know, any of the, any of my heroes, Paul Strand or Ernst Haas or any, any of these guys. And I can look at them and I can study them. And, but, you know, unless I actually allow it to go deep and change, you know, to raise questions for me to look at the stuff, maybe I don't like it. Maybe I look at an image and go, boy, you know, he was really mailing it in on this one. Um, <laughs> But why, why is it not hitting me? What is it lacking that uh, in my own work I would seek to, you know, to include and, and absorb it and then do something with it rather than, you know, we sit in judgment so much and we, we like it or we don't like it. But, you know, whether you're inspired or not has nothing to do truly ultimately with whether you actually go out and breathe your own life into what you create. And you do that, but it's, that's just the hard work. That's making lots of sketch images, recognizing when you edit that some resonate with you more than others. Uh, It's one of my concerns about social media that we listen to the thumbs up and the likes and the hearts and the great capture mans. uh, And we maybe allow those to sway us more than than we should. So in my workshops now, I have actually sort of forbidding uh, them to do it because I don't really, I'm not a forbidding kind of person. but I have strongly encouraged my students for the week that we're together, whether it's Venice or, you know, India, uh, no social media. Don't consume social media. Don't post to social media. And I don't want them sharing their work with each other on the trip either. I want them to do the work, hmm. not to be exposed to other people's thoughts and opinions. I want them to focus on their thoughts and opinions hmm. because only when you do that and you have find the courage to put it into your work and risk maybe an image that your social you know your social media feed's going to go eh, I don't know you know mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. but you feel like it's strong and it's powerful um, we lose that courage the more we give power to the you know all of those other voices you know I I have a small Instagram following it's I mean smallish for for a lot of these photographers it's you know approaching 18,000 which you know how maybe there's maybe there's only 500 real followers and the rest are bots but uh, you know there there is there's a core there and it is very easy to think when you're doing your work oh you know what are they going to think mm-hmm. and and that's not exhaling you know again it's just a metaphor but that's not putting ourselves into our work that's kind of like 
I don't know, taking little pieces of other people and trying to cram it in so that they recognize themselves in it. Mm. And I, I think that's, that's the path to homogeny, to, um, it's just to boring work that doesn't reflect who we are. Mm. So I'm not saying get off social media. I'm on social media. I'm just saying, be careful to how we listen to the voices and be cognizant of the fact that they may have more sway over us than we think they do. And so when I'm in, for example, if I'm writing a book, I don't, I don't read. I stop reading when I'm writing because I don't want those other things to start influencing me. The mm-hmm. time to be influenced is, is, you know, some other time, you know, get all that stuff in my head, get it marinating. It will certainly influence me anyway, mm-hmm. but I want it to be a result of the combination of thoughts and ideas, not, oh my God, I read, I, I read this really great sentence in Stephen King's novel. I got to figure out how to put that into the soul <laughs> of the camera, <laughs> you know, which would be really interesting. That would be a creative exercise all on its own. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, to to completely jump tracks, you mentioned people getting rejection letters and having the perseverance. I mean, Stephen King, when he first started writing, he tells the story in his book on writing. Mm, I've uh, read that. About, yeah, and it's a brilliant book. And he talks about, you know, he, he would tack up his rejection letters and then he was nailing them up. And then the nail fell, you know, was too small and he had to get a bigger nail. And eventually he had like a railway spike or something. <laughs> For all his rejection letters. Yeah. I mean, this is Stephen King. Right. If, if you didn't hear that, you'd just be like, wow, he just he succeeds because he's just a writing god. No, he he just succeeds because he submits and submits and submits until people say yes. And yes, he is a talented person, but um, he's published the way he has because of his tenacity hmm. as much as for anything else. And I think the same holds true for us. Hmm. Yeah, I was actually thinking of of on writing um, when I when I said that earlier about people, you know, because it 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 is so many people you hear that um, that just have that experience. But yeah, it was it was Stephen King that I was thinking of when I when I mentioned that earlier. Um, and J.K. Rowling is another great example of that. I mean, yeah. she she was rejected time and time again and treat, treated quite flippantly by some people who no doubt very much regret their uh, <laughs> their lack of foresight now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, you you touched on there again, audience, and I I didn't grab a quote on this, but um, when I when I first read started reading what you were saying about audience, I was thinking, oh, well, I I've just said in in my in a blog post that I don't really care what people think of my work, and then uh, and I I sort of think, well, maybe I maybe that was something that I should rethink, um, but then I went on and read your your uh, your full take on your relationship with your audience. And, um, I think we're, we're pretty much, again, we're, uh, we're pretty much on the same page in that it's, it's important to, to hit a chord with, with the people that you share your work with. But, um, I, I never, I would never sort of change what I'm, how I make my photographs to please the audience. And, um, I think you sort of, you got to that sort of same, same, um, thing. Um, obviously it, it is important that we, that we we care about what an audience thinks in, in that you know if the audience if the people that we're that we're using our imagery and our you know the our the photographs that we make uh, to make a connection with if they don't they don't like that they're going to be somewhere else reading someone else's blog or someone else's book or whatever um, or or on someone else's workshop um, so of course it's important but uh, um, the the, th- the point that um, I was trying to make in a, in a recent blog post and, that, and I think that you were talking about as well is that it, to, to stay authentic to ourselves, then you, it, we really need to be sort of working from within ourselves. And this is something that we've touched on throughout this conversation. So, sure. Yeah. I, th- I think very much, I think um, I care very much that 
that an audience that that the audience that finds my work resonates with it is touched by it um, that it does something for them whether it raises questions or awareness or whatever whatever it is but I feel very strongly that um, knowing who my audience is I am not asking gosh what do they think about my work when mm. I when I create it I think what we need to do is create the most authentic work possible mm. the stuff that, that we're passionate about that maybe other is completely different than anything else anyone's doing whatever or, or not but our audience will find us and frankly as we shift and grow I mean I I, I have been changing the way that I photograph lately my stuff has become a little bit darker it's not the as much not always bright saturated colors and my black and whites are even a little bit darker and and i've had a few people express that gosh they sure miss the you know the mish, wish they miss the cheerful colorful stuff and 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 now i may go back to that at some point i've certainly i'm still a relatively optimistic cheerful colorful guy mm-hmm. um but this is the work that i'm doing right now what i do know is if they leave as an audience and go and find someone else you know what that's fine because the current work i'm doing will find the audience that it needs to have Hmm. it's really not about my audience liking my work it's about me allowing that work to find its own audience Hmm. and and i think that's an important distinction it's you can't please everyone so let your work find the audience that that really likes it and gets it and don't compromise on that because you know therefore there are photographers that I have followed and then kind of, you know, I just, I change as a person and their work doesn't resonate with me. I mean, there are authors that I've read for a season and then stopped reading and maybe I go back to them. Maybe I don't, but it's fine. I I don't think holding on to our audiences with this death grip, like, Oh God, I've got to do anything to keep them. Mm -hmm. No, you need your work needs an audience, but maybe it's not comprised of those same people. Maybe if you have 5,000 people that are your audience, Mm -hmm. maybe those 5,000 individuals, they, they move on, you know, they're replaced by others and that's okay. That's Mm -hmm. I think that's necessary because the only alternative is to just keep pandering to that one audience and repeating you know and soon we're all selling box sets you know <laughs> yeah yeah beautifully put so playing the, um, playing the, on old casino stages and wearing <laughs> wearing costumes from 30 years ago <laughs> rock, with, a, with a rubber washed chicken. up rock and rollers of photography yeah, with a rubber chicken in your hand easy now easy <laughs> that's that's touching a little deep my friend <laughs> Okay, so some lines friends just don't cross. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to go into any more detail on that then. Um, so uh, yeah, that reminds me actually, you, as you were talking about a crappy bus ride um, earlier, that reminded me of um, of when we were together in Hokkaido a few years ago, and we would we'd be driving along, and you <laughs> you um, you'd notice a crappy abandoned bus that was like half decayed and that. I, yeah. I remember we got towards the end of the trip and you were like, crappy bus number 14 or something <laughs> like that. Um, yeah, the, um, my, my portfolio of those crappy buses is almost finished. I'll be releasing it. <laughs> oh, I can't wait to see yeah. it. I, I'll be the first in line for a limited edition. <laughs> I should point out that when you brought that up, I was like, he's not going to say we had crappy bus rides. Because I never had a crappy bus ride with you. And that was in part because every 15 minutes we could stop and buy sake at a convenience store. <laughs> I love Japan. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a cool experience. They don't they don't like it if you drink sake in public buses here. Yeah, there a lot of um, 
a lot of countries you're not allowed to have alcohol in the, inside the the passenger area of the vehicle, are you? So that's yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it, that's one of the great things about Japan. Um, so I'm I'm going to read out one last co- quote more because it sort of it probably just finishes off the conversation pretty well, and it, that's from page 193. You quote John Wesley saying, "Light yourself on fire with passion." And people will come from miles around to watch you burn. And I, I just, I, I wanted to add that in because I just, I love that so much. I've not heard that quote, um, but isn't that so true? It, it is. And I, I want to remind everyone at home that this, again, is just a metaphor. Please don't go, you know, immolating yourself. <laughs> Put the gasoline down. Yeah. Um, but it, it is it is true. You know, we, for all of the talk of passion out there, and it's been, you know, the word has been so overused that, um, you know, my eyes kind of gloss over when I say it. But for all of the talk of it, we see so little of it. And I saw someone, I think it was my friend James Victoria, who's a an, an artist, and he there was a quote, and I believe it was his, where he said, we could be so good if we weren't so comfortable being mediocre. And <laughs> and I just, I love that because, you know, if we want our stuff to stand out, if we want to touch people, if we want it to mean something, mm. it's, I mean, light yourself on fire, it's... I, it's not a comfortable thing. I mean, it, passion is great, but you, you we got to work hard at this stuff. You know, we got to focus. We've got to bring all of our emotion and our, our love to bear on these things that we're photographing. And if you don't love it, I mean, if you don't truly, truly love it, then why spend your time on it? You know, mm-hmm. um, I mean, concentrate on that thing or those things that you love so much that you would be willing. Because none of us know you know, um, I, I mean, this is this is personal, and you know, just having had a, a family member pass away. But none of us know how long we have, and I don't want to get off on the life is short tangent. But I'm totally going to get off on the life is short tangent because <laughs> it is, and for all of us, for your audience, for us, and we want something to care about and sink our teeth into and invest in, not just one more thing to swipe through on our Instagram feed. We want people to stop and think and not every image is going to do that but god i hope some of them do mm-hmm. you know because that's where that's why people will come and they will listen to what we have to say if we care enough if we have skin in the game mm-hmm. you know if you're a conservation photographer then shoot conservation stuff with your whole heart you know like put it in there and if it's portraits or weddings do the same thing but we need to voice an opinion we have to you know, again, it's just a metaphor, but God, if more people would just light themselves on fire with that thing that they care so much about, mm. uh, I think pe- I, I think people would start caring more about our work. And even as photographers, you know, people would start respecting the f- photography that's, you know, would respect photography mm. rather than seeing it as just, you know, one of a billion posted to the Internet every day. Mm. Uh, but again, that's the idealist in me. I, you know, and if that doesn't work for you, then, you know, grab the gasoline. <laughs> well, that sounded uh, dark, didn't it? That sounded pretty dark and <laughs> angsty. Let's go back to metaphor. It's just a metaphor, people. It's just totally a metaphor. Oh, brilliant. So, so eloquently and wonderfully put as usual, David. Um, I, I think we can, we can start to wrap up there. I'll, uh, obviously, I, I've totally enjoyed the conversation again. Um, it's always so much fun, um, 
and kind of in in some ways always a little bit profound talking directly to you as well because uh, I have been um, so sort of influenced and inspired by um, all of your books, uh, but also you know with this uh, the soul of the camera so fresh on my mind. Um, it's really nice to actually just sit down and talk directly with you about that. As just a quick reminder that uh, you know people will be able to go over to the soul, sorry soulofthecamera.com and uh, and grab a copy. Um, but also, uh, yeah, I just wanted to say once again, thanks very much. I've really totally enjoyed the conversation today, David. Well, and and thank you very much. It's always a privilege and an honor. And uh, you know, hopefully, one one of these days again, we'll uh, we'll do one of these in person, face to face, over a bottle of sake or something like that. Oh yes, yeah. Hey, you, you know, um, I I know you like whiskeys. I uh, I just last week grabbed a bottle. What's it called? It Orgbeck or something. It's from Isley. Isla. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Um, Ardbeg. That's the one. Yeah. yeah. Um, have you ever tried that? I have. I used to drink Ardbeg. Uh, I, I would even have at one point have called it my everyday whiskey. Oh dear. <laughs> which which makes me you know which doesn't put me in a favorable light, but uh, only a little bit medicinally. It was yeah. purely medicinal. <laughs> Well, I, I found that it totally disinfected my um, my <laughs> my, um, my throat. I, I didn't realize it's like fifty nine percent or something. I was I was on my third glass the other night, thinking, "Oh, this is this is nice," uh, and I don't pour small glasses. But then I, I, I thought, actually, this is this is it's pretty good stuff. And I looked at it, and it's like fifty nine percent. Okay, I think three glasses is enough. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, and it's funny you say that because I my preference has shifted uh, almost exclusively to Japanese whiskeys lately. Oh, uh, they, they make I, beautiful whiskey, don't they? They really do. And once you sort of get over this, because I, I used to drink only whiskey from from Isla, mm. and uh, you know it's peaty and dirty, mm. and it tastes mm. like someone threw dirt in your glass. And I love that, yeah. but I kind of needed a change, and I, and I started experimenting with the. Uh, uh, only socially, you know, at parties and stuff, uh, initially, um, with, uh, with Japanese whiskeys and they make some really beautiful, really beautiful whiskeys. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like, um, there's uh, Taketsuru is one of, one of my favorites. That's a, you know, relative, a pretty nice Japanese whiskey. Um, but they, they, yeah, that there was a gentleman came on, uh, on my Hokkaido landscape tour this year who'd got a book. Apparently he he drank too much whiskey when he was like in his teens or something and decided that he didn't like whiskey from that experience. But then um, like 30 years later or so, he's he found a taste for it and he got a book and it's I think it's like 110 whiskeys to drink before you die or something. Um, hopefully he won't die very soon, but <laughs> but he's, he's on this mission now. And three of them were Japanese. We were, we were trying to find these. I think he found one or two while we were traveling and, and uh, and add those, but yeah, whiskeys are pretty. Uh, and the, I I um the other one from Ireland was it Lafroig? Uh -huh. um, that's that's really peaty, and it tastes like creosote. It's uh, that was it, pretty. It has creosote notes. It does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but very. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I, we won't we won't go on too much about that. Everyone will think we're a couple of alcoholics. Well, um, if the shoe fits, I uh, I'm now I'm regretting not putting a whiskey chapter in the book. <laughs> That'll be the the spirit of the camera. That'll oh, be the next one. Brilliant, brilliant. Okay, well, really, thanks again, David, for your time and for oh, for your wisdom and too. everything. It's uh, it's always a pleasure, and uh, hope we can do it again soon. Absolutely. Take care. And you too. That really was a lot of fun, as usual. So 
As I mentioned earlier, if you want to check out the few images that I put in from David and the uh, the links, go to mbp.ac slash 576 and all of that is there. Before we finish, I'd like to quickly mention that, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that I'll be in Namibia for this year's tour while when I release this, but I've just started taking bookings for the 2018 Complete Namibia Tour and Workshop. And it's an epic 17-day tour on which we photograph the beautiful landscape and culture as well as the wildlife of this beautiful country. So for details or to book your place, please see the tour page at mbp.ac Namibia. So thanks very much for listening today. If you enjoy this podcast, please share a link with your friends. Subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast program to ensure an interrupted delivery. If you have a moment to rate the podcast or leave us a review in iTunes, that helps to keep us relevant in the huge number of podcasts out there now. You can find me on Google+, Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. And links to everything that I'm up to are at martinbaileyphotography.com, so do drop by and take a look. I'll be back next week with another episode, but in the meantime, you take care and have a great week, whatever you're doing. Bye-bye.